I have really enjoyed going through this uh, particular book. I've always loved First and Second Samuel. Just I don't know what it is that draws me to it. I know we always say, well, it's the Goliath and David confrontation. And that certainly is a is the big picture, right? But there's just so much that goes into, at least for me, that I really enjoy is seeing somebody come from obscurity and God using them in such a prolific way as David. And knowing who David represents is a, is a type and a shadow of Christ. I just, I just love... We all love stories, right? Where you see the guy that, you know, looks like the underdog being neglected, forgotten, and then next thing you know, he's leading the entire nation of Israel, you know? And I really have always found these two books absolutely fascinating, especially for myself. It's always looking for some encouragement, you know, that by that, that particular. Uh, those two books really bring a lot of encouragement. So uh, we're going to go ahead and start in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, verse 1. But let's open up with a uh, short word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we ask God that you would be here with us. Uh, Lord, that you'd be pleased to be here. And Lord, we know that your pleasure really is connected uh, with the with the death of your son, his shed blood. And we know, Lord, the book of Hebrews says that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence, not in ourself by any means, but in our full trust and confidence in the blood of Christ. And Lord, we come to you this morning through the precious blood of our almighty Savior and Creator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask God today that you would bestow the blessing upon the congregation today, that you'd open up their hearts, Lord, uh, that they'd be willing to receive what it is that you'd have to speak to them this morning, Lord. That we wouldn't be bombarded with everything that's going on in the world, in our homes, wherever the el- whatever else may be, uh, Lord, that you'd remove any obstacle, Lord. Help us here. And Lord, help me speak the truth today. Uh, Lord, help me uh, just allow any vanity that's in my heart to be removed, any pride in my heart just to be gone, Lord. Uh, use me, Lord God, for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through a little bit of the uh, portions that we've already been through, and then dive into uh, what we have this morning. I think we have to kind of revisit uh, these first couple of uh, verses and kind of get a, a picture of what's happening and make sense to what we're going to be hearing this morning. Verse 1 says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to Saul. I'm sorry, Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul had sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of the cities of Israel singing and they're dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang and they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. You see, it wasn't about the campaign wars of David and Saul that was the issue. Ultimately, if we're really dialing into the story, it was about the war that the book of James declares that comes from the heart. James chapter 4, uh, 1 through 4 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet because you cannot obtain. And this is really the issue that's going on. This isn't really about, you know, um, just dealing with, with the aspects of David's victories in front of Saul. Certainly that would have pushed him in, in, in an area of envy. But here what we see is that Saul is really fighting this war for pleasure in his own members. He's lusting because he does not have, so he wants to murder and covet so he can obtain that very thing. It's always in the heart of the people that that were these where these all these conflicts come from. It's really the driving aspect of even our lives if we're not careful. And it's a really it's a, it's a big issue here because this whole story really is about from what I see it's really the unregenerate heart right and how a kingdom is built from the flesh opposed to one who is humble at heart who is used by God God has molded him and shaped him as you can see the whole track of David as David's coming into power he's coming into power through being powerless Right, And then we see Saul, his whole thing is about wanting to obtain power, to be seen as a powerful person. For what? Just so he can obtain for his own lust and his own greed and his own covetousness, which can happen to any one of us as well. You say, well, we're converted. You know, and you, these questions come up, can I really be driven out of the kingdom of God? No. If you're truly converted, you're never going to lose your standing with God. But if we're not careful, we can see ourselves progress in a similar way, even being a Christian. All of you can testify to this. I can testify to this. How easy is it at times to allow things to slip into our hearts? We're not in prayer. We're not in the Word. We're not around God's people. And next thing you know, we find ourselves having a hypercritical spirit or someone has something that we don't have so we start finding ourselves resorting into worldly ways to try to fix a problem that ultimately 
is dealt with in Scripture. It can happen to any one of us. The whole process of these two kingdoms were diametrically opposed from each other. One was begun with pride, the other humility. One desperate to be known and seen, the other from obscurity, whose only desire was to be faithful where God had placed him. Picking up where we left off in verse 10. Verse 10 says, And it happened on the next day, right after the Bible tells us that Saul had been eyeing David from that time forward. So this is really the next the next day. Spurgeon says that Saul eyed David with an evil and envious eye, looked with suspicion upon him, and de- determined to do him mischief whenever he could. And then it says that a distressing spirit, or another translation would say, an evil spirit, notice this now, from God, came upon Saul. And this is very similar if you read about this situation where this evil spirit had, using the words, had come upon Saul. We've seen the same situation read in chapter 16, dealing with the Spirit of the Lord. It says, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit came from him and troubled him. And Saul's servants, as we're looking at uh, chapter 16, verse 14, and Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. It was then said in verse 10 of our chapter that Saul began to prophesy inside his house. And this is a little odd and a little strange when I was reading this. I had to read, by, read, read it two or three times just going, Saul's prophesying again? And it said Saul had prophesied before. As we, as we have read in 10.10, which says, When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets. And we've read this to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. He, per, he first prophesied from the Holy Spirit. And now he is prophesying by a familiar spirit, or what would be considered demonic spirit. Um, this is very, very troubling Uh, And we have to recognize as well that ultimately at the end of the day, it is God who has ordained this. And it is God who allows the enemy to provoke people in such a way or to inflict people in such a way. Uh, The devil and God are not on the same grounds. Remember that God had created Satan. He's a created being. But his power is still limited. And at this point, it seems that... um, that here we see that he is prophesying by an, an evil spirit. Uh, I'll let what commentator uh, Barnes has to say. He says, Now the madness assumes a new phase, and the king is consumed with a murderous jealousy that fills his whole soul and drives him now to open deeds of emotional intensity and violence. Saul was in a state of frenzy, he goes on to say, unable to master himself, speaking words of which he knew not the meaning, and acting like a man possessed. 
In all this, there was something akin to the powerful emotions which agitated the true prophet. Only it was not a holy influence, but one springing from violent passions. The dean of Canterbury well calls attention here to the conjugation employed in the original Hebrew of the word rendered prophesied, which is hithpael is the word, which is never used, hear me now, which is never used by an Old Testament writer of real, true prophecy. This being always expressed by the nephel conjugation, which is basically Saul was delivering a despicable imitation. The Arabic in, intimates that he was actually possessed by an evil spirit and that through it he uttered a sort of demonized prediction. It was madness, a madness where only a harp of David could tame. You know, if we look at this seriously, you know, being reformed, being, uh, let's say a, a, a healthy understanding of the Scripture, you know, we have, to, we have to understand that this is really a gross mixture between total depravity and Satanism at work here, as far as the demonic world at work here as well. And I think a lot of times we can give too much credit to demons and to the devil and to Satan and not realize that sin is really what put Satan in his spot originally. Because of hell is because of sin. So the sin nature, really, if you look at this, is really more problematic and very well the seedbed of this man's action. Read in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, the Bible says, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. See, the Scripture is very clear about total depravity of humanity, the radical depravity of our very being, and what issues out of the heart of those who are totally depraved. And here in Ecclesiastes, there's so many Scriptures that we could get into to deal with this. We just don't have time today. But Ecclesiastes really, really nails it. The hearts are truly evil all the time. Madness is in their hearts while they live. I think madness is a really good word. Because here we see this in the life of Saul, even in his anger towards David, his jealous and his envy and his drive to destroy this man who actually has the kingdom given over to him really is driven by a madness in his heart. I mean, this is the madness that you and I were delivered from. This was the madness that I didn't realize to after six years of being a professed Christian, a false convert, because I came through another way where I got some cheesy form of the gospel that never really dealt with my sin to show me as the Bible does, where the law of God showed me the character of God, the holiness of God was finally presented to me after six years showing me that I was totally depraved, totally dead in my sin, totally gone. I never saw my sin any longer after that point. Every little lie, everything I did was extremely offensive to a holy God. And it was only then, brothers and sisters, and you and yourself should be able to attest that you saw yourself 
As in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw Christ for the first time in his life. He saw Him in all of His splendor, all of His holiness, all of His beauty, all of His majesty. And it was that very moment he didn't go, Wow, I'm a Christian. I'm a new believer. What can I do for you, Lord? He actually says, I am undone, unraveled, ruined to such an extent. I mean, it's that point in our lives when we see Christ for the first time. We say to ourselves, yay, I'm saved. No, it was I am totally and utterly ruined. Ruined, nasty, vile, rotten, criminal before a holy and righteous God. You see, we have to get to that place first. We have to see ourselves as being totally depraved, unable to make ourselves a Christian. The whole idol of free will goes into the garbage where it belongs. We realize I'm not saved by my free will. I'm saved by God's will. I'm saved by the sovereignty of God. He chose me, the Bible says. Christ says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. It's not about making a decision. It's about God made the decision. And He acted upon it. He invaded you whether you gave Him permission or not. And he, he, he took you off the nasty throne of your own heart. He comes and gives you a new heart. He sits down upon the throne of your heart. And he sovereignly rules you up into this point. And I would even go as far as to say that God rules the wicked. Whether they repent, whether they confess Him, whether they turn Him. God is in control. That's what the book of Psalms says, that God owns all creation and the inhabitants of the creation, and He knows exactly what they're doing, and He's ordained everything that comes to pass. It's not about debating me on the subject. Go to the Scripture and debate with God on the subject, because it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. You cannot mistake in it unless you purposely skip those verses, because you just don't like them. And the reason we don't like them because we don't like to recognize the fact and admit the fact that God is in control and you're not. That's always been the biggest deal with people who see the Reformed faith because they don't like having their own way. And they do not want for one moment to say, hey, God is in control of my life every jot and tittle. They want autonomy from God. They want to do their own thing. And this is where God confronts us and says, this is not the biblical gospel. And it, it is. It is, a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a terrifying thing not to recognize this. You don't want to come to your faith the wrong way. You don't want to come in with just some um, spitting out some sinner's prayer thinking you're converted and then come into the church a complete mess, hear the Word of God preached, you get mad, and you leave. We have to understand the nature of total depravity and Saul was totally depraved. And from my reading of Scripture, it doesn't look like he ever came out of that phase. It looks like his entire kingdom was built on the sovereignty of God moving in his life at certain moments in his life for God to get the glory and God do what he needed to do to position David into his rightful place. And I think it's interesting to watch how God works. But you see all the way up until the very conclusion of Saul's life that he was not a man who was after God's own heart. He was a man after his own heart and the heart of his people, and it left his entire ministry in ruin. So while we got to understand that there's a mixture here, even with this, I mean, we understand that there was 
Satan was involved in this. And the unregenerate heart that's not changed can give the devil a run for his money. That is in its production of evil. Other examples from Scripture include another king who not only uh, would not acknowledge God as the reigning king over the lives of men was King Nebuchadnezzar. Fortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord allowed him to come back and regain his position, but only after his recognition and submission to God's rule and not his own. Unlike Saul's demise, was never given the kingdom back, ultimately leading to suicide. This is, this is just an idea because, listen, when, when, when men in leadership, right, in any kind of leadership, or even in your own lives, you suppress, even as a believer, you will not hold to certain views of God and you suppress those views, right? You're going to find in your own life it'll malfunction. Because if it's not running on the, on the four cylinders of Holy Scripture, your life will automatically combust. You'll blow circuits because you are not in line with the Word of God and you're wanting to do things for yourself and in your own way and you get upset when God doesn't do it your way. But it's when we repent of that, which we all have, there's things in my life that I'm, I'll be repenting up until the day I die. You know, but there are things that I didn't know when I first became a Christian that I know now. And it's because of God's loving, loving grace in my life, but also the mercy of believers. And I'm going to tell you something. When people first came to me with the Reformed doctrines of grace, I didn't come angry. I didn't throw a spiritual fit and get mad and start condemning them with a bunch of Calvinism garbage, right? I was so happy for once in my life to hear someone give me a biblical explanation for human existence. I've never once seen that in another, another view of Scripture. They could give me honest verses, not out of context, that could explain their reasons why people are the way that they are and why I am the way that I am. The way people are wired. The people are totally depraved. They're dead in their sin. When they hear the gospel, there's a sense of retaliation within them automatically just based upon their nature. It's not free will that's going to bring them to the gospel. It's God's sovereign power that takes a person out of darkness and into light. So I understood that, that my worldview, listen, when you get it, when you get the verses, you get scripture from this context of the sovereignty of God, the whole world begins to make sense around you. You understand why they retaliate. You understand why they get angry. We understand why at some point it's very difficult for us to get out and preach. But I'll tell you something, or just share the gospel, right? But I'll tell you something. If you go out into the world with a different worldview than what the scriptures have for us in pertaining to total depravity and people who are lost, you'll come back very disgruntled. Why? Because you think everybody out there is hungering for the gospel? And you get out and you realize that they're not. They're hungering for your blood. Right? They're not hungering for the gospel. They're not hungering, hungering for God. The Bible says they're going the opposite direction. There's no fear of God in their eyes. They could care less about God and they could care less about you. Right? So we have to, we have to understand, okay, I'm going out there that this is kind of the reaction you're going to expect as long as you're not being a jerk to people. And then you get persecuted for being a jerk and then you try to act like you're godly when you're not. The reality is that people will, people will be offended at the truth. 
I like what uh, Paul said to Timothy in, in chapter 1, verse 18, if you're taking notes. He says this, This charge I commit, you, commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have shipwrecked, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now it seems here from this reading, you don't offer up a sinner to Satan. Sinners already owned by Satan. So here when he's saying that I offer these men up to Satan, which show that they were believers. Because this is church, like church discipline, right? You offer them over to Satan to, for what? That they'd be inflict, afflicted so that they would learn, repent, come back into the church. You don't see this with an unbeliever. Why in the world you give someone over to Satan if they were a like an unbeliever, right? They're already given over to Satan. They belong to Satan, right? At that point. So anyway, regardless of your view on that, the point is here that these people had rejected with a good conscience the faith that was given to them and they now were delivered. And the point is is that their, their ministries are shipwrecked. They have destroyed their entire testimony of their life. And this is a scary thing. You know, this could happen to any one of us. It could happen to me. I get pulled off into some wacky doctrine for some reason or another. I get influenced by something. I start going off the deep end. Next thing you know, this whole church is just a mess, right? It gets dissolved. It gets split. Something happens crazy, right? All because I had rejected the truth of the Scriptures and now I've literally ruined everything in my path and the lives of other people. I've shipwrecked my faith. doesn't mean I'm lost, but it means that I have some severe repenting to do and I've lost everything. These are the two parts of it. Or you could just say, hey, they were rejected because they were not of God, they were not born again, and they have suffered shipwreck because of that. Fair enough. Romans 1.18 deals with this as well. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, this being the lost, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, the suppression of truth, right? The, 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 the person who is lost, there is no such thing as an atheist, by the way. Scripture tells us very clearly that all men know of the wrath of God. Everybody knows. God says he's made it clearly seen to them who are lost. So if God said it's, been, it's clearly seen that they know God exists, why would we go out and believe the atheist who says, I don't believe that God exists. Yes, you do. You just hate God. You suppress the truth in righteousness and your whole lifestyle is nothing but absurdity. Why is it absurd? Because you can't make sense with it. You can't validate his worldview with the word of God. He cannot even validate his worldview anywhere. Only by the word of God can he even make sense about communication, language, the order of words, the order of the universe, the very fact that he's talking and speaking with objective truth that he can't do in an atheistic worldview. The moment he says, I don't believe in God, he's self-refuting. Why? Because he's making an objective statement that he cannot make in the worldview of atheism. Anytime he speaks, he's ruined. Because he's making objective statements. I don't believe in God as an objective statement. It's objective. He cannot be objective. Because in his worldview, there is no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as right or wrong. 
So when you confront them, an atheist on this view, and say, hey, listen, man, you're just borrowing from my worldview to fight against me. You're borrowing from me to argue against me. I'm the only one that can make sense out of, out of this world because God's word satisfies all knowledge and all objective claims. His worldview has no way of reconciling or validating his view. He can't live consistently in an atheistic worldview. He can't live consistently. He's living in a Christian worldview and denying God because his heart is perverted. He hates God and he wants to live his own way because he doesn't want to obey God. So he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and then claims that he's an atheist and doesn't believe in God. Totally self-refuting. Totally self-refuting. You can't do anything unless you start with God. This is why a lot of the, uh, the apologetics out there are really terrible. Because they, they, they put the whole argument upon the atheist opposed upon God's word. God is, never a, God is always assumed in Scripture. He's never, God never proves himself in Scripture. In the sense, to his people, he'll prove to them his love for them. He does things. He's proved his love for us by sending Christ. But to the atheist and the unbeliever, God never proves himself or argues with them and who he is. He is who he is. And he created all men. All men are held together in Christ. There's not one maverick molecule in the human existence that's not controlled by God. You are held together in Christ. God is in control. God knows all things. You are created in His image. Whether you agree with that or not, it's still true. And you're going to have that likeness of God on every human being that knows the wrath of God and knows the judgment of God. Because the Bible clearly, clearly says here that the wrath of God is revealed, revealed, from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.21 says, Furthermore, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, He gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Psalms 14.1 is interesting. Verse 2 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that is good. It's interesting too, in the original Hebrew, there is no such thing as the there is. Where it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What it really says is this, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Basically saying no to God is the original intention of that verse. And that's interesting. Now, now you see that the fool is said in his, in his own heart, telling God no. Right? They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. It's an act of rebellion on the, on the part of the unbeliever. Right? It's not the fact that they're, they're innocent because they just don't know. That's not true. And that will not work on the day of judgment. When you stand before God, that excuse will not fly. Because you do know. You do know. If there's anybody in here today that says, you know, I don't believe in God or this, this, and this, and you think somehow you're going to escape God's wrath, because of that, you're claiming ignorance, you won't. You will not escape His wrath. You'll fall under His wrath for all eternity. For that, 
neglect that you do know. In John 13, 2, it said, we were reading it, we were reading our Bible study, uh, this verse came up, the devil had put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And then in verse 27, says that Satan actually entered in <clears throat> into Judas. And we see here that during these times, you know, I believe up until Christ was resurrected, right? The difference between Satan's involvement in humanity, right? Him being involved in people the way they get acted upon by the demonic forces, right? There is a change and more of a limited, uh, a limited capacity of what Satan can do after the, resur- after the resurrection. Um, he seemed to operate in a different function. Um, because we see here that Satan was moving up, up, upon the heart uh, of Peter and upon Judas at different times as well. And Satan actually entered into Judas. Therefore, we see when Saul here at this point, and where we read uh, in this verse here, where Saul was dropped upon by an evil spirit, is very Satan himself is very similar to what we see here. But in, in, in the New Testament times, it seems once the, the book of Acts reaches us, it seems that there's an elevated power of the Spirit of God in the life of believers, but there also seems like a limited power of Satan's involvement in being able to dictate and to be able to move in people's lives like he did in that particular time. Ephesians 6.12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, listen, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Warfare is not over. Satan's not over, right? Demonic forces is not an end to these things. It's very clear Paul is telling us that we need to understand this reality that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we still do wrestle against the powers, against the rulers of darkness. This is true. And all of you, I know, I can personally testify of the spiritual warfare that goes on in my life, and I'm sure a lot of you can attest to it as well. Satan is alive. All right? I'm not going to say he's alive and well, but he's definitely alive and he is moving upon this planet. Anybody can see that. And then we see the remedy, right? We see the remedy here. The remedy is, it says that, so David played music with his hand. As at other times, as at other times he did this, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. David played music. David here, I'm seeing, you know, and I see this type of thing. I see all the all the the darkness, right? All the difficulties in Saul's life and all the problems that he's causing. I see this for me, I see this as a man who's totally depraved, right? Totally selfish, totally in vain glory, building a kingdom unto himself. But then I see the gospel presented. I see the beauties of Christ. I see the delicate hand of my Savior reaching in to a man such as Saul, a man such as me. And I see this picture of Saul, I see it as me. I see that's me without God's governing grace and power. That's me. And then here comes David, you know, on the scene. He doesn't look like he's being condescending. He doesn't look like, drag my harp over there and do this again. It's more like this idea that 
with David because we see his life. We see his life of humility. We see the way that he behaves. We know that he's coming to help. Even he doesn't have to be the show. He doesn't have to be the king. He's happy to be the harp player. If this is what God called him to do, this is what I love about David because he was happy to do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. His father's chores, watching the sheep out in the middle of nowhere, looked upon and frowned upon, right? The lowliest job on the planet, right? You can imagine that. And here, God is bringing him to a place where now he's slowly moving up the ranks, but not thinking that in his mind. He's not doing this because he wants to be raised up on the next rung. He's doing it because he simply wants to be used by God to help others. And this is where I see Christ in this. Christ comes in, as you uh, did such a great job with your devotion this morning, it just really kind of confirmed what I was preaching today. You know, the singing mixed with truth. And I thought about that when you were saying that. I'm like, this is exactly what David was doing to Saul. He was bringing song and truth to Saul. He wasn't bringing just songs or something he's made up, you know. I know he was the, God ultimately was the inventor of all the psalms, right? So he wasn't just bringing like the latest song on the, on the charts. He was bringing the song of the Lord to him. Yeah. He didn't bring in any Taylor Swift to get him up and going, did he? Yeah, thank God for that. I'll digress. I could really go off there, but I'm not going to. Guys, know I get sidetracked. Um, so, the thing is here is what we want to look at is that he brought this music with his hand. The Bible says, which is such a beautiful illustration. But I want you also to recognize that both of these verses both show clearly dealing with the hand. First of all, it says that David played music with his hand, and then it says here about Saul that he had a spear in his hand. Something's being, something's being declared here in Scripture, and we've got to recognize that. Um, I love what Easton's Bible Dictionary discusses on the whole symbolism and illustration of the hand. Uh, it says that the hand being the instrument of instruments. It is a symbol of human action. Washing the hands was a symbol of innocence, also of sanctification. In Psalm 77, it says the correct rendering is, as in the revised version is, my hand was stretched out. The right hand denoted the south and the left the north. I have verses to back all these up if you need them. To give the right hand was a pledge of fidelity, also a submission to the victors. The right hand was lifted up and taken an oath. The hand is frequently mentioned in particularly the right hand as a symbol of power and strength. So the hand is always seen as a symbol of power and strength. To kiss the hand is an act of homage and to pour water on one's hands is to serve him. The hand of God is a symbol of his power it's being upon one that denotes favor or both punishment. In Acts 13.11 it says, A position at the right hand was regarded as the chief place of honor and of power. Saul seems to, at this point, um, holding the javelin in his hand as a scepter according to like ancient custom. So, I was thinking when I, <clears throat> when I first read it, 
I had the impression that he was just squeezing his spear, just waiting for this man to screw up. He's going to, you know, drive that spear right through his heart. That's the kind of feeling I had based on what I've read. And that could still actually be the truth. But here it seems to be because he was a king still that he would hold their hold when they sat, the custom was when they sat in their chair that they would hold the spear like a scepter. So that very well could be that as well. But we do know that he flipped out and lost it, right? And ended up throwing whatever that was in his hand, being a spear at David. Interesting. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Think about that for a moment. He escaped not just once, but he escaped his presence twice. And this is where I want to look as we begin to narrow this down and finish up. I want to look also, we've got to understand something here. When it comes to the gospel, I know we talked about total depravity. We talked about the reactions of the wicked and also of the righteous. But I want to look a little bit closer at the retaliation of the wicked and why they retaliate. I'm not going to get into it too deep, but I want to look at it from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is dealing with the enmity, right, of Satan and the believers, those who are of the seed of the Lord, and those who are the seed of the serpent, right? There's always, be, always from the very beginning of time, since the fall, and, and, and with God's dealing with His people, right? And those who are not of His people, who are, as Jesus, when He pointed out to the Pharisees, says, you are of your father, the devil, right? Speaking to their retaliation, their, their um, provoking Christ, coming at Christ, being envious, wanting to murder Him, murder all the the prophets of old, murder all the disciples at some point. All this murdering came from the flesh of the unconverted, those who are in full retaliation against the gospel. They're at enmity. All through the Bible you will see that there is enmity between God's people and the people who are unconverted, those who are belonging to Satan. It's never going to go away. I don't care what all these mega churches are doing, all this stuff that they want to do to please people, to accommodate the world, to make everybody feel good, to go out into the, into the neighborhood, not with the gospel, but for doing surveys to find out what everybody wants and then accommodate them, bring them into our churches, get huge churches, and then have to deal with a bunch of un- unconverted people. It's a dangerous place because you don't want to offend people. You're afraid of a small church. You're afraid of being honest. You're afraid that people aren't going to give to you if you, if you, if, if you actually preach the word because most of your people in church, these bigger churches, I would say a majority are unconverted. They've come to the church through a false gospel and being pandered to, to their sin into their sensuality opposed to be confronted by the gospel and God's holiness and God's character and God's power. So when they come to faith, they come the right way. They'll stay in church. They won't cause problems, God forbid, but they will be driven by the holiness and love 
of God. They will no longer be retaliating against the gospel. We have people out on the street sometimes we'll be preaching in the open air. Joseph and Brett can testify to this. So you get people coming up and they're well-meaning Christians telling us we're just not doing it right. And they, they want to tell us how to improve. And they're getting offended and getting mad. Next thing you know, they're cussing and swearing at you. For what? For what? They're offended at the gospel. I mean, the men out there preaching, they do a very good job. Very godly men moved in power to preach the word. They're not out there looking for trouble or causing problems and calling people's names. They're preaching truth, and you've got people calling themselves Christians arguing with them. There's a problem with that. I have a huge problem with that, and I tell them. I have a problem with that. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. That's not a very difficult passage to understand what that means. It means to go out with an elevated voice and proclaim the word of God to lost people from one man, from one human being, to another human being, face to face with an amplified version of the gospel. And that offends you. What part of that offends you? What part of my message offends you? Well, I just don't think it's right. What's not right? They can never come up with an answer. They just walk away. Really, the ultimate thing is, is they're offended. They're ashamed of the gospel. They hate the gospel. They hate God. And they're false converts. And they're running around getting mad just like the world at the same gospel that we've been preaching. Something's terribly, terribly... It's enmity. It's enmity. It's hostile. It's hostility. It's aggravation. It's retaliation. We got to stop worrying about what the world thinks of us. We have to get out of the mindset of always wanting to be famous and seen and popular and liked and loved by everybody. True biblical Christianity, you're not loved by everybody. Jesus said you'd be hated by everybody. This doesn't mean we go out and try to be a jerk and be hateful just so we can say, hey, look, it's true. But there is a sense of godliness that the world does see. I know for me, when I first became a Christian, I think I was a false convert, I was jealous of all the men and women that God was using. Because I wanted that so bad, but I couldn't get free of my sin. I couldn't get free of it. I know what to do. I had the false gospel. The gospel they gave me was different than what I heard six years later. Well, the one I heard six years later, I was truly converted and came out of my sin and lived the way the Bible says that a born-again Christian should be, at least at some level. Big difference. It's that animosity that we see in the world. And I would like to remind you today, just remember, expect it. Okay? The Scriptures tell us that your aroma is rancid and awful. The aroma you give off for your Christian faith to the world is awful. But to other Christians, it's a sweet aroma of Christ. And it benefits us. We love it. The Bible says the preaching of the cross is foolishness. To who? To us? No. To those who are perishing. It's foolishness to the people that are perishing. How dare you preach a, 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 a message that says that the God of the universe stooped down low enough to go to the cross to die. That's foolishness. That's absurd. Nothing can happen like that. But to us who are saved, it's not foolishness at all. The Bible calls it the wisdom of God. That's the wisdom of God. That when you're converted, you recognize that. And the gospel is no longer foolish to you. You won't show up at some open 
open air preachers preaching the gospel and start complaining and fighting with them because he's not doing it right. In verse 12, it says, Now Saul was afraid of David, okay, because the Lord was with him. I mean, we know that um, he was sent out, right? He was sent out, and he gained the popularity and respect of the warriors that he was leading. They, they were totally on board with him. They loved him. They were gelling with him. And don't you think for a minute, Saul didn't recognize the relationship <clears throat> that Jonathan and David had. And I guarantee that would set Saul going right at that moment. That's Saul's son. He wants that kind of relationship with his son. He wants that kind of respect, but he didn't get it. David got it. And I can imagine that did something to him. David was accomplished. He was accepted by those he went out and followed. Saul would have saw it. This guy's moving in power out there on the battlefield. I'm not. I'm hiding. I'm making excuses to such an extent. I'm sending a little shepherd boy out to fight a giant after 40 days of tolerating this misery and not doing anything about it. Oh, but he was nice enough to give David his armor that didn't fit in the first place. And this is where he's gotten. And this is where he ended up. And now Saul is afraid of David. He's scared of him. Because the Lord was with him. But had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David once again behaved wisely in all of his ways. Therefore I think David, as you see later on, I'm finishing up, trust me, quickly, but David wouldn't harm Saul. He would never, he had so many opportunities to wipe Saul out, and he never did. And I believe when David act wisely, it's like many of us. We have to understand this as well and navigate through things. Things may not work out your way. Someone may feel like they did you wrong or offended you. Don't fall into the ways of the world and start combating that person like a child. Learn how to navigate through things. Ask yourself before you say something or you send that text. Ask yourself this question. Do I really need to do this? Do I need to do it now? Would it better I just picked up the phone and called? We've got to remember these things. We need to behave like, like mature people, right? It's all this kind of stuff that creates so many problems that could have been eliminated and prevented if we would just stop for a moment and ask ourselves, is this particular situation, is this a hill I'm going to die on? Do I need to die on this hill? Do you need to die on every single hill? No, you don't. God has put you in his place. God put you in a place to be committed, and there's going to be a capacity by which he's put you in, and that's your hill to die on. doesn't mean every little hill. We've got to learn to be careful, especially in the church, and learn these things. Take them to heart. Pray about it. Just be careful in how you speak. Don't be hasty. Relax, pull back, you're not going to die. Because when, you're, when your adrenaline's up here, you're just like, oh. and then all of a sudden, an hour later, you're like, oh, I wish I would have said that. Oh, I wish I would have done that. I've done that so many times on social media and other arenas where you are writing and doing stuff. Just remember, think before you act and think longly. Take some time before you begin to approach another individual, especially in the church, if you have an issue, right? Do with much maturity, much love, much grace, right? And much respect. And that conversation will definitely be a conversation that can be reconciled. Quick application. Um, we see that uh, Saul um, 
Therefore, when Saul saw that David behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Uh, the application is really humility and versus envy is is a big is a big like theme of these of these of this story. If you, if you extrapolate that and pull that out, you're getting a lot of two different kingdoms, two different views. I like what Colossians three twelve says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, being you guys and me, holy and dearly loved clothe yourself with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience that's something needs to be up on our mirror every morning when we're brushing our teeth and combing our hair we need to read that verse and meditate upon that every day and i think our attitudes would be different towards other people uh, number two stay the course even when you are continually being attacked and even hunted down Right? Because that pressure, the pressure on us can make us behave in very uncomely and ungodly ways because of the pressure, right? But if we, if, if we understand the warfare, as Paul was saying, we understand this reality, and we turn to the great heart player of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we look to him, we'll find ourselves, as Romans 12, 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation be constant in prayer and then we see another verse do not repay evil with evil do not repay someone's foolish stupid comments or things or you see something in the church you just don't like don't repay it with evil because they're being evil that's the most challenging thing of the christian faith isn't it it's not going out preaching in the open air that's nothing compared with this particular verse and acting upon it even in your home. First Peter 3, 9 says, don't repay evil for evil, but don't retaliate, hear me, with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do and he will grant you his blessing. Number three and last, look unto Christ. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us learn seriously. I know it sounds cliche sometimes and people say that, but really, let's be the church that has the habit and the default of always looking to Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning, Lord. And I pray, Father, that the word of God ran swiftly uh, through the hearts of your people, Lord. And that we all can take away something uh, from this message, Lord, and apply it to our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to change in these areas. Help us to grow and mature. Let us not be the man or woman after 10, 20 years of being the faith, still repeating the same identical sins that they struggled with 20 years ago. Lord, help us to put to death those things. We cannot do it on our own. We need your grace and power and enablement to even do that, Lord. But Lord, we desire, as your body, we do desire these things. We do desire to put that old man down, Lord, to put the axe to the root, to drive out anything, Lord God, that would be a hindrance to you and getting to know you and a hindrance to getting to know the people of God. Lord, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.